Hello everyone, it's Mark Godeka here. Welcome to the NT Pod, the podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. It's episode 60, and today we're looking at the criterion of embarrassment in historical Jesus research. In the previous episode of the NT Pod, we began a series on criteria in historical Jesus research. This is the tool bag, if you like, that the historical Jesus scholar uses to sift through traditions and work out what's authentic and what's inauthentic. And it's become almost its own special little industry within historical Jesus scholarship. And I'll be taking a critical look at these criteria in this uh, series. Now, One of the ones that's most favoured by historical Jesus scholars, a really popular criterion, is this one called the Criterion of Embarrassment. And the clue's in the name, very straightforward to understand, already introduced it briefly last time as well. And it's the idea that if there's a tradition in the Gospels that looks like it's somehow embarrassing to the evangelist or embarrassing to the first Christians, it's obviously not made up by them. It's obviously not obviously not fiction. If it's not especially flattering to Jesus, then it's much more likely to be historical. So it's a sort of primary indicator of historicity. The example that I took of this last time was the baptism of Jesus by John. And I offered a few critical words about the use of the criterion in that context. But let's, for an example this time, go to the end of the gospel account, the passion narrative, and look at one of the favoured examples of the use of the criterion of embarrassment in historical Jesus scholarship. And that's Jesus's cry from the cross in Mark 15. Because in Mark 15, Jesus says famously, first of all in Aramaic, and then it's translated by Mark into Greek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And although lots of theologians have done a great deal with this over the centuries, and they've talked about Jesus's sense of abandonment and him bearing people's sins, and that's what leads to abandonment and so on. Nevertheless, most historical Jesus scholars think that it's not the kind of detail that Mark would have made up because it potentially makes Jesus look like at his closing moments of life, at his death, instead of dying with a serene, celebratory kind of term, what he's doing is he's looking like he's dying in complete anguish and embarrassment and shame. And when you compare this last saying of Jesus in Mark's gospel with what you get in Luke's gospel, for example, where Jesus says serenely, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or you compare it with John that has the triumphant, it is finished, as Jesus' last words. And then you look at Mark, it really does look like it's much more of an embarrassing thing for them to be attributing to Jesus at the end. And therefore it has that likelihood of being somewhat more historical. Matthew does have the parallel in his gospel. Matthew's passion narrative overall is quite close to Mark's passion narrative. So Matthew has it as well. But what do we make of that type of argument? What do we make of the idea that that is especially likely to be historical because of the embarrassment to early Christians? Well, I must admit, I'm not persuaded too much by the strength of this kind of argument, because after all, is Mark really embarrassed by this 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 way these last words of Jesus on the cross i mean after all the whole way that he's depicted the crucifixion has been as a scene where, where he he isn't kind of pulling any punches he really wants to say that Jesus died in 
agony and did die in shame and did die in a sense of abandonment. And I think that that kind of abandonment that Mark is depicting isn't something he's especially embarrassed by. In fact, throughout his passion narrative, he is trying, I think, to depict Jesus's suffering as something that will actually ring true with people in antiquity that did understand the full horrors of crucifixion. And in fact, what Mark's trying to do is say that in spite of these horrors and in spite of the shame, that nevertheless you can see God's pattern uh, in, the, in the way that the events are unfolding. He uses scriptural language and so what he's doing here is he's, he has Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 so in spite of the fact that the words themselves might sound somewhat horrifying nevertheless for Mark they are expressive of God's will on this occasion it's what I talked about in an earlier podcast the scripturalization of uh, these uh, passion narratives this isn't to say that I think that it's not historical I, I, I've think it's very difficult to assess these sorts of things. It's just to say that I don't really think that we've got people at this time who are thinking of this as, as in, in some way embarrassing. They probably think it's quite an appropriate thing for Jesus to be saying at his death, to be joining with the psalmist by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder though with this criterion whether one of my problems with it, as much as anything else, is the term I just find it really difficult to conceptualise the evangelist and to conceptualise the earliest tradition as being really embarrassed about any of the material they're including. I think if they're truly embarrassed by any of this stuff, they wouldn't have included it. I mean, you might say that on one level, crucifixion and a crucified Christ is itself embarrassing. After all, Paul talks about the crucified Christ as being a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness uh, for Gentiles. But, but I don't think that's embarrassment so much as paradoxical. It's the, it's the earliest Christians saying that where you might have thought everything had gone horribly wrong, actually it turned out to uh, be very much uh, in God's plan. And so I don't really think that it's embarrassment. The whole idea of the Gospels is that they are a kind of propaganda, propaganda in the Christian cause. And so they don't have on the whole things that the authors are terribly embarrassed about. But you know what? I think it might just be a bit of a hang up with that term. The term is used by scholars like John Meyer. But when you turn to one of my favourite New Testament scholars, and you'll know this if you've listened to the NT pod before, E.P. Sanders. Now, he uses the term against the grain and he 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 says look what you've got to do when you're examining the gospels and looking for history is you look for things that are a little too much with the grain and things that are a little bit against the grain and that after all is 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 a useful way of conceptualizing this stuff because whenever you're writing any kind of story about figures that have actually been around in history or whatever, when you're writing those things, you will inevitably, in retelling these traditions, have some things which, you know, go a little bit against the grain, where when you kind of read the account carefully, you see that certain things don't quite cohere with exactly what it is that the evangelists are trying to say. You've got a good example of this in Mark's Gospel. In Mark 7, where you have this Syrophoenician woman coming to Jesus to be healed, you get a great moment where Jesus seems to be quite rude to this woman. The woman comes to because she wants to have her daughter healed, and Jesus says it's not right 
right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Dogs being a derogatory word for Gentiles. So Jesus being doubly rude to, to this, this woman. And what that may show by reading against the grain a little bit is that in Mark's gospel... And Mark's gospel is a gospel very much of the nations, of the Gentiles. It wants to celebrate the idea that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Nevertheless, it kind of almost slips in by accident this moment where you see that perhaps the historical Jesus wasn't quite so pro-Gentile as Mark wants to depict him as being. That's what I think we mean by against the grain. The term embarrassment isn't quite right, but the term against the grain helps us to behave a little bit more like historians are behaving lots of the time. And as I mentioned last time, for me, if there is a purpose in the historical Jesus criteria. It's about training people to be better historians and it's about introducing students to the whole business of doing history. And when you're doing history, that's one of the things you're doing. You don't take texts at face value. You don't just look at the propaganda of the texts and accept them. What you do is you cross-examine them. You treat them as a hostile witness. And then you try and work out from looking at those texts the information that they, they don't kind of particularly want to yield up, but which we can tease out of them. In other words, it's recognising what the spin is in the accounts and then going underneath it to find out the underlying uh, nuggets of history. That, that, that might just be sort of lurking under the surface somewhere. Perhaps it's worth finishing on repeating a point that I made last time, though, that one has to be careful about the sort of dogmatic use of these criteria or, or the kind of oversimplistic, over-wooden use of them. And the criterion of embarrassment, as it's normally stated, has something in it that I find especially troubling, which is the idea that the evangelists were embarrassed about stuff that at the same time seems to be proclaimed in a whole variety of sources. And you remember that one of the problems about the John the Baptist story is that lots of historical Jesus scholars will say at the same time that it was embarrassing to the evangelists to depict Jesus being baptised by John, but that also it was something that they all chose to repeat, that, that nobody thinks I'm just going to drop this from the story. They, they, they repeat it uh, and it gets multiply attested in spite of the fact that it's something that uh, we're supposed to believe they're all embarrassed by. And that's the kind of troubling side of it. I suppose one of the themes that's developing in my own thinking about the historical Jesus criteria and that I hope will become clear in this short series on in the Antipod is that it's something about the uncritical, rather stodgy, unthoughtful use of these criteria that we really need to get to, where we're thinking seriously about the task of doing history, there are useful things to be learned from these, and I'm certainly not wanting to kind of steamroll over them all, but nevertheless, we do need to think seriously about the way we use them, especially the way that we use them in, con in concert with one another. Next time, I think it's about time I did turn to the criterion of multiple attestation. Lots of fun to be had there. I could do two or three podcasts on that, but I'll try and keep it all in one, and uh, I'll see you next time for that one but thanks for listening to this episode of the nt pod uh, you can find me on the web at podacre.blogspot.com go to facebook.com slash nt pod or twitter.com slash nt pod or you can find me there on twitter and um, of course you can find me on duke university's itunes u thanks again for listening always good to have your company i'll see you again soon bye bye